Hello, listeners of the ASI Podcast. My name is Russ Shaw. This is Season 5, Episode 26. Titling this episode, Where's Your Shack? And I realize the book The Shack has got some criticism and people yelling heretic and stuff like that. And what Paul did was he wrote a story, all right? The film The Shack is being released in theaters this month, and I know that the criticism is going to come out again. And, you know, the people that just don't understand will criticize this film as some kind of you know, call Paul a false teacher and this bad doctrine. And I, I pray that you, I do pray that you see the film. It's, it's actually really good. Um, but I've had Paul on the podcast here a number of times, a couple of times. Um, we've exchanged emails over the years since. And uh, listen, as far as the heretic stuff goes, I want to honor the fact that you may feel a little fear about that. If you've heard this or you feel like, oh, I don't know, right? If you have those feelings, so did I, all right? I wasn't sure about this. You'll hear some of that in in what I'm going to play today. Uh, But I want to challenge you to stick with me in this conversation. You're going to hear some clips from my first conversation with Paul Young uh, when I was also in that place of trying to figure out whether this guy's a heretic or not, to be honest with you, but I can, I can honestly say that that the timing of that first conversation changed my life. It, it really did. Uh, the way Paul thinks about God and, and theology, uh, he didn't write a theology book, right? He wrote a, a piece of fiction that's like a metaphor. And it wasn't just how what he said or how he thinks, but that he actually cared for, for my soul and what I've been through. I could sense that in his, his voice and his spirit. So, and listen, I get it, but I pray you have an open mind as you hear this. Whatever your hang-ups or challenges may be with that, I just pray that you, you, you stick with me because what I didn't know is that Paul Young and I had a lot in common. You know, and the shack is a description of the human soul, the heart of a human being. And it's the house on the inside that people help us build. And a lot of us, it's the place where we then store all of our addictions and we hide all of our secrets and it's a place of shame. I wish I could say to you that I finally figured out that I was pretty broken. So I went and got help. (laughs) I didn't. Um, A lot of times, some of us were so broken that we have to get caught. And I got caught. And um, it was really, in retrospect, the kindness of God because this woman paid a huge price for my healing and it wasn't fair to her. And uh, because I drug all the brokenness into the marriage and she didn't know. And she said, I will never believe another thing that comes out of your mouth the rest of your life. Oh, my heart, don't let it bleed no more. Sometimes forgiveness is like a man God only knows why love is worth the fall. Maybe that's what makes it love. The music that you heard there is from Hillsong United, and it's actually off an album 
that was created and inspired by the uh, the film The Shack. Uh, there's a lot of big names on here: Tim McGraw, and Faith Hill, Lady Antebellum, uh, Skillet, Lecrae, uh, Dirks Bentley. Uh, a lot of big names. Uh, there's 14 tracks on the album. Um, again, so this was, you know, not just a kind of Christian-y movie done by, right? Like, this is a full-on, big-budget Hollywood film. Uh, Octavia Spencer, who won the Academy Award for The Help, is in it playing Papa. Uh, Mac is played by Sam Worthington. Uh, he was also in another great film that was nominated for Best Picture this year called Hacksaw Ridge, Sam Worthington. Uh, so uh, Tim McGraw is also in the film. So again, this is not one of those kind of christian movies for the, the Christian channel, right? Also, I want to give some credit to the uh, the audio from that clip you heard. That is a clip, and I'm going to play some more audio from that. The original uh, is an interview. It's over an hour long. I took about 15 minutes. It's from HTB Church in London, England. If you'd like to check out the video from that, it's on YouTube. You uh, you just search for HTB Church interview with Shaq author Paul Young if you want to hear the, uh, the whole talk in its entirety. It's there. Um, so after the 15-minute uh, clip that I took from from that interview, you'll hear uh, some of my first interviews with Paul. Again, when I was in a, a tough spot, uh, the church I'd gone to was collapsing, falling apart. Uh, a lot of people were hurt. A lot of people were angry. Um, a lot of it was just a really tough time and and meeting paul at that time was was really good for me even though i'm like uh, i don't know about this stuff right um but now that i've i've read his books and uh, i know him a little right it's i i just i hope you see the movie all right so i'm going to shut up now and then you'll hear me talk again after this um clip from from that conversation at htb church in London, England. Here you go. Ah, good evening. I'm catching my breath a bit. Um, there's no such thing as an ordinary human being. And uh, C.S. Lewis pointed that out, and I think he was absolutely right. All of us are extraordinary, but most of us don't know it. And... Um, you know, you look at our story. I think every human being is a story, not just has a story. I think every human being is one, and every story matters. Um, I think that's why we have such an affinity with story, is because uh, story has a way of climbing inside of the precious places of our hearts without asking for permission. And uh, creative work generally does that. It creates more space than it uses up. And, um, and I love that about story. So when, you, when you're with someone and you begin to hear their story, you're really on holy ground in a lot of respects. You're not dealing with just humanity that is created out of the ground, but you're dealing with the activity of God and a God who is a burning bush who doesn't require you know, the, the bush itself to maintain the fire of his affection, but is, shows up 
in these holy ground places. Um, so my, my story is holy ground, like your story is. Um, in some respects, it's on the surface, ordinary. On, in some respects, it's not normal. <laughs> well, who knows what normal is? So uh, I'm, um, I grew up inside pretty fundamental Protestant uh, traditions. I was, uh, I was born in Grand Prairie, Alberta, in Canada. And when I was 10 months, thank you for the, <laughs> I was there one time for two weeks. <laughs> I have never been back, but they have adopted me as the town mascot. So um, I grew up really overseas. Um, when I was 10 months old, my mother and my father and I packed up everything that we owned and we moved to the highlands of New Guinea where my parents were pioneer missionaries for a Protestant denomination. And um, there's uh, really incredibly wonderful things about growing up in that kind of world. There are some really difficult things about, uh, at that time, particularly in missions, where there was a sense that as a parent, you needed to be willing to sacrifice your child on the altar of God's purposes and God's mission. And uh, a lot of my generation were dismantled in the name of the gospel, and uh, very hard, very, very great sadnesses. Um, New Guinea is, uh, has 800 and plus unrelated language groups. We were part of a tribal culture that had never seen a white person before, which was not a problem until I was six years old and went to boarding school and found out I was one of those, and uh, which was a huge disappointment, and, and uh, um, created some real identity issues for me because I, at that point, I lost everything. At six years old, I lost my tribe, I lost my family, I lost because I didn't know where I belonged after that. And that's part of the struggle that sometimes third culture kids have, missionary kids and army children and, and business people that grow up in different cultures. And, and um, um, I had uh, a couple other great sadnesses, including... Um, a difficult uh, relationship with my own father who came from a broken background and was part of a generation that didn't know they had baggage and wouldn't have known what to do with it if they'd known they had baggage. And, um, and he was a very angry young man who didn't have the chip for being a dad. And so I learned early and often not to have anything to do with this human being because it was too dangerous to be anywhere near him. Um, and then uh, sexual abuse was a part of my childhood. It started in the tribal culture, um, and it was uh, often, and it was incredibly um, heart dismantling. Nothing quite dismantles the human soul like sexual abuse. And, um, and my parents didn't know. They didn't have uh, an awareness or a sense of it. And sometimes it was happening within 10, 15 feet of them. And, uh, but it was a dominant part of my childhood. At six, I was sent away to boarding school, a Christian missionary boarding school. And the, and the first nights, the big boys came and uh, molested the little boys. And so it just became part of the unraveling part of my heart. You know, there are things that as children we don't we don't have any control over. And as children, we don't have the ability to process it. 
So we think that everything around us that goes wrong was our fault. And, um, and the, part of the question is, where, where is God when things were stolen from me? You know, where, was, where were my parents? And, and then as we grow and we create these survival mechanisms and skills and, and we have addictions that show up inside our brokenness, because we got to have something that eases the pain or fills this emptiness or some way that we can find a way to love ourselves. This is one of the attractions of pornography, is, is we can control a relationship without having one. You know, there's no risk involved, and we can't be rejected, and it's, it's part of this hugely terrible addiction. And, um, and so, you know, I began to turn around inside the brokenness of my childhood, and I began to break things. Um, I broke relationships. I, I betrayed trust. I continued to hide um, the truth about who I was that I thought was the truth about who I was. Um, I became a performer. Because, you know, when you're a child, and everything, everything about yourself becomes trying to win the affection and approval of those who are around you. And if you come from a religious background, that includes God. So you're, you're trying to constantly figure out what people want so that you can be that, so that you might win some approval and affection. And then God has a whole list of things that you're told that he needs you and requires you to be in order to win his approval and affection. So it all becomes about performance. And, uh, and those of us who are broken become breakers. Um, and so one of our big questions is, where, where was God when I broke things? You know, why, why didn't he stop me? Why didn't he stop them? And, and these are some of the questions that involve our, the deepest places of our humanity. And um, I learned to survive. I learned to walk the edge between giving up, which is definitely an option. Um, I went to, we came back to Canada about the time I was 10 years old, and I went to 13 schools before I graduated high school. My father was an itinerant pastor, so he would take different churches, and we constantly moved. And uh, so I would say, you know, I never ran away from relationships. I just heard God call me somewhere else. You know, it's totally a cop-out. And um, um, because relationships is what did all this damage to me, um, largely men. And, um, and yet... Relationships are what offered me any sense of possibility of healing my heart. So you're caught, and, and secrets become part of that whole um, broken place inside our hearts. You know, and the shack is a description of the human soul, the heart of a human being. And it's the house on the inside that people help us build. And a lot of us, it's the place where we then store all of our addictions and we hide all of our secrets, and it's a place of shame. And, uh, and the, my, my metaphor was that I took pieces of the shack and drug them about 100 yards outside the shack and created a facade, a piece of plywood that I could paint as fast as I could pick up people's expectations. So I was a performer, right? I didn't want anybody in the shack because I, I was afraid and terrified that they would hate me as much as I did. And I couldn't take that risk. And I was hoping that if I performed right... Perfectly, long enough that the facade might become a real boy, 
might become the real person. And uh, at some point, your facades have to come down. And it's going to be inside relationship. Um, I said earlier in one of the, one of the uh, times was, I, I wish I could say to you that I finally figured out that I was pretty broken. So I went and got help. <laughs> I didn't. Um, a lot of times, some of us were so broken that we have to get caught. And I got caught. And... Um, I married Kim mostly because I felt that uh, this is a long story which I won't get into but it was really uh, in retrospect the kindness of God because this woman paid a huge price for my healing and it wasn't fair to her but she did it and because uh, I, I drug all the brokenness into the marriage and she didn't know you know, when, when you're in sort of the dating relationship, which I m- made very short from the time I asked her to marry me, which we hadn't even really dated, to the time we got married was 11 days. And, uh, and some of you will understand this. I wouldn't have made it 12. See, this is a perfectionist performance mentality. I was only good as my last moment of perfection. And now I lived with a person who had no qualms about making observations about my imperfections. And I did, it tapped right into my shame. Well, I'm an adapter. I'm a survivor. I didn't tell her about all the damage in my shack. I didn't tell her about my addictions. I just found a way to adapt. And I didn't know how to love, but I'd read the books about it. And I grew up in the church, so you know I had a, a good idea, I thought. And I adapted. We have six children. Our youngest is 21. And, and shortly after he was born, January 4th, 94, I get a one-sentence phone call from Kim. And uh, all she said was, I'm waiting for you at your office, and I know. And my whole facade came crashing down in one sentence. Because what she knew was I was in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. And at that point, I had to make a decision whether to face Kim or kill myself. This little jump out of this and run away one last time before you hit the bottom kind of place. And I don't even know how I... I think it was the grace of God that got me across town and pulled into the parking lot into the business office where she was waiting for me. She'd already torn my office up. I mean, literally torn it up. You have to understand, Kim and her five sisters, she has five sisters and two brothers. Her and her five sisters are called the Force. (laughs) (laughs) And for the first four hours after I walked through that door, she took me apart. And four hours into this, I told her, if we're going to actually do this, I need to tell you every secret I have. And naively, she would tell you she was so naive I mean, her world had come apart. And naively, she said, bring it on. And it took me four 10-hour days to tell Kim all my secrets that she didn't know. And at the end of those four days, Kim was destroyed. And she said, I will never believe another thing that comes out of your mouth the rest of your life. And I believed her. But I had hit the bottom. I'd stopped pointing fingers at my abuse and 
and uh, hiding behind my addictions and I thought I either have to find some healing or I'm dead. If I can't find some healing, it's over. So I looked in the yellow pages under counseling and I found a therapist. I started with the A's, worked my way down, found agape, agape, which is the name, the word for God's kind of love, which is other-centered self-giving. Agape youth and family services specializing in sexual abuse histories. And I called up and I was introduced to a man who became my friend. Scott Mitchell, and for nine months, I mean, I sit in front of him the first day, and I say to him, Scott, my life is over, and for the first time, I'm 38 years old, and for the first time in my life, I say to another human being, can you help me? To that point in my life, that was the greatest single risk I had ever taken. Because if the answer is no, why would I take the risk of doing this again? And one of your questions that you've asked me earlier is, can we get past this? Can we get through brokenness? Can, can we actually be healed from our addictions? And I'm here to tell you, absolutely yes, but it's not easy. It's hard work, and you can't do it by yourself. You have to begin to take the risk of trusting somebody. Mackenzie Allen Phillips. I've been looking forward to this. Do I know you? Not very well, but we can work on that. This is incredible. He's still having a hard time believing this is real. Why did you bring me here? There's no easy answer that'll take your pain away. Where were you when I needed you? You want me to forgive him? I want him to hurt like he hurt me. You want the promise of a pain-free life? There isn't one. The following are two clips from episode 55 of the ASI podcast. My discussion with Paul Young author of New York Times best-selling book, The Shack and Crossroads. To listen to this episode in its entirety, go to ASI247.org. There, there are links to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio Network. There you go. So, uh, The Shack, man, uh, you wrote The Shack, New York Times bestseller. It wasn't just a New York Times bestseller, but for 49 consecutive weeks, it was on the New York Times bestseller list. It was number one for 49 consecutive weeks. That's how nuts it was. It was on the list for 200 and some weeks. Wow. Yeah. That's never been done before. I have no idea. Since. From from what I've heard, as far as... Yeah, from what I've heard, too. Right. You didn't didn't have to, like, pay a guy or something... No, nothing like that. <laughs> in there, huh? No. Hire a, a company. No, I, made, I made 15 copies at Office Depot and went back to work. So I, this is this was not even on my bucket list. This, <laughs> right. this is totally God's sense of humor. It's got uh, <laughs> it's got little to do with any planning or agenda on my part. You didn't set out to be a best-selling author at all. I didn't even set out to be an author. I oh, I set out to write a, a Christmas present for my kids. <laughs> that's what it, <laughs> That's, that's that's awesome. Um, you also wrote the book Crossroads, 
this was also a, a bestseller. Yep. Two great stories. I haven't read. I started The Shack. Um, I haven't started Crossroads. I just started The Shack recently. Uh, now, I'll be honest with you. One of the reasons I didn't read The Shack is something my pastor said uh, of the church that I was going to for a long time. I've recently um, parted ways with that church. Um, I'm rooting for that church. I haven't you know, totally left. I haven't found another place that I can really call home yet. Um, I'm kind of in a mourning process, really, a little bit, Paul, from this whole thing at, at the Mars Hill Church, a church that I love. And, and Pastor Mark, who I, I respect, um, had some negative things to say about your book uh, back in the day when it, came, when it was started to really become a hit back in 08. Um, and that, that's the reason I didn't read it. And that's the reason why a lot of people at Mars Hill didn't read it, sadly, um, the, the good news is that's the reason a lot of people did read it. <laughs> that's, that's why I picked it up again. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, Mark probably sold me, as a single individual, probably sold me more books than almost anybody else just because he banned it. <laughs> it was, I've, uh, I've had an opportunity to thank him about that. So <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Now, I heard that just after that, that, that kind of uh, outburst from him that you had a, like a meeting, I guess, set up. Yeah, and we're going to publicly invite him in to discuss this stuff. Like, hey, I'm not a heretic. Let's talk about, you know, this. And I don't think it's like you didn't sit sit down and write like a theology book. Like, here's how you should think about the Trinity. That's not what the book is about, right? No, but it is uh, orthodox theology. It is orthodox to the core. And uh, and um, you know, it's just like when you say Jesus, you know, you wrote this parable. That's fiction, right? It's not theology. Well, it doesn't mean it's not true. And, uh, and so, you know, this, the underlying current of the shack is that this is a true story. It's just not real. It's a parable. And um, so the fact that, you know, he, it, when he first came out with his uh, um, statement against the book, it was pretty obvious that he hadn't read it. And, um, which is true for a lot of people. A lot of people um, who are still upset with the book haven't read it. Um, I'd say that would be in the high 90 percentile of the angry people. Right, and, right. Um, and those are my people. I mean, Mark's coming out of, I mean, he swung from um, one theological position into a pretty strong reformed position. And, um, and in that, you know, that's where he was coming from. And I know that position because I grew up in it. Right. And uh, that way of thinking about God and about the cross and about atonement. And, you know, he called me a modalist, which anybody who'd read the book would say, there's no way that Paul's a modalist. You know, how, how could you have three characters of the Trinity in one room talking to each other? <laughs> and, what is uh, a modalist for, uh, for those who are theologically challenged? Oh, it's, it's you know, the, the, the beauty about being in... in intellectual, which is not what my category is. I'm, I'm a, I'm a writer. So right. but the, the beauty about any theological system uh, is that you can adapt a whole set of esoteric language that nobody else can understand. And then it becomes a mystery religion. <laughs> and uh, right. as long as you've got these little words in your pocket, you can pull them out and, and bang somebody on the head with them. Modalism is pretty simple. That is, um, that you have something that presents itself in different modes. So 
sometimes God presents himself as a father. Sometimes that God presents himself as a son, sometimes as the Holy Spirit. But they are three different modes of the same God. They're not three persons. Right, They're right. just three expressions. So I'm a father, I'm a husband, um, and I'm a brother. But those are just different modes of how Paul expresses himself. That's modalism. Right, and that right. was considered heresy right off the get-go. And so um, the attack against me as a modalist is like, no. And, and part of the argument in the early church was you can't have Jesus face-to-face with someone in John chapter 1, or you can't have Jesus praying to someone unless they're other than him, Right, which is a violation of modalism. So that's sort of what modalism was. That's something I've had uh, discussions with people over the years. Um, this podcast is listened to all over the globe, and I've I've been grateful enough to be able to speak into the lives. And, and I'm not a theologian, Paul. I didn't even finish. Like, I didn't. <laughs> I'm not an educated man, but just from what I know about about God, and I've had discussions with uh, Muslims who were have kind of the same sort. Well, how can Jesus pray to the Father and be the Son? Like, how can God be two like that? And I said, well, we kind of want to put God in a box. And maybe I'm learning from you as I say this because I've said this before. But we kind of want to put God in a box and say that, well, you know. God isn't constrained by time and space. And I think that's one thing that I've, I've been able to try and get into the heads of some of the, the Muslim folks who, who listen, is that, you know, God doesn't have the handcuffs of time and space on, you know, going, uh, I'm constrained by this. Like, what if God can be in time as the son and outside of time as the father were, you know, I mean, I don't, that's a weird theological idea, but that's kind of what you're saying, right? Like we, we try and put God in our box so he'd make better sense for us. And I'm saying something um, fundamentally uh, more basic even than that. And that's what you're saying is true. You're talking about imminence and transcendence to use two big words. But, but what I'm saying is that there are persons making up the oneness of God and very distinct person, because if you only have one God, who distributes himself in three different modes, you have no basis for love or relationship. Right. You don't have, there's no relationship between me as a father and me as a brother. My fatherness does not have a relationship with my brotherness, right? right? right. They're just different modes. So if you only have one God, a monad God, a singularity that's indivisible, but just expresses himself in different roles, you don't have a basis for love. There is no other to love. You're just loving yourself just in a different form. But it's not because there's anything recipro- reciprocal in that. So this issue of the, the three persons inside the oneness of God is absolutely critical for love and relationship. You can't have it. And, and, and this is Athanasius from 300 AD, a 21-year-old um, North African uh, black man who kind of saved the early church and stood up and said, this God who is alone does not love by nature. That's a problem. Right. Yeah. So in order to get a God who does not love by nature, religion will step in and create a whole system of things that you have to do to trip the love wire. But it can be pulled at any point 
Yeah, it's like got this idea, oh, well, God was was lonely, so he made human beings. Like, that's not true. That's not true at God all. God is in relationship with himself. Well, not just with himself, with an other. Right. There are three persons. And this, even in Genesis chapter 1, you have multiple persons within the very nature of God. Elohim, in the beginning, God is a multiple, it's a plural noun. Right. And then it says, let us, the, the pronouns are plural. Right, right. And, uh, and so you've got something that is way more profound than an indivisible singularity, because that would mean that my capacity for relationship and love is something that God himself does not possess by nature. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we're saying no. So we are absolutely for there being one God. But we are also absolutely for that there is an other within God. And as as the illumination of the character and nature of God unfolds right from the very beginning. You're introduced to Elohim, Yahweh, Ruach. And, and uh, there's this absolutely marvelous verse that gets mistranslated in the English out of the first three chapters of Genesis. And that is, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And Ruach is the word for spirit, Right. Right. And it's uh, that's the spirit of God was hovering over the deep ruach and it's feminine. And the, right. and the pronouns are all feminine and the verbs are feminine. And um, and so in this verse, they heard the sound of the Lord, Elohim, God, Yahweh, who you're introduced to in chapter two, walking in the ruach. So again, these are clips. If you go to season three, episode 55 and 56, you can hear both of these episodes in their entirety. It was a long conversation. I ended up cutting it in half. Uh, that was that was us talking a little theology. In, in this part here, we talk about uh, Mars Hill Church and, and the pastor and what myself and my spiritual community, the people that I loved in my Jesus family right here in the Seattle area, what we were going through at that time. This is before the church had actually collapsed. Mark had resigned, and they, they just... Uh, all the campuses became their own churches, basically, is what happened. But here's uh, us talking about that. It was a tough time in my life, man. Um, I did have a conversation with Mark because he didn't want to meet me in public, and which was fine. Uh-huh. Um, I invited him to. Um, and then he asked, I asked him if I, could, if I could meet with him on his terms, and he said yes. And I met with him in his office, and we had about 45 minutes, a really great conversation, actually. Mm-hmm. And about halfway into the conversation, he said, you know, did you realize that uh, every time I tried to introduce a theological conversation here, you turn the conversation back to relationship? And I said, yeah. I said, you and I, we're not going to agree theologically. <laughs> so I, I wanted to talk about something that's actually real, you know. And then I got to ask some relational questions. It had nothing to do with whether he, you know, bashed the shack or not. Actually, that didn't bother me a bit. And, um, and it was, you know, tell me what's going on. And, and it, we had a very good conversation. Regardless of all this, how this all falls out and everything else, the beauty is, is that as far as uh, Mark is concerned and um, is that, you know, 
Papa's especially fond of him. God cares more for Mark Driscoll than he ever did for the church as a, as an institutional structure. You know, that's just a system. Right. So the brand. huh a brand, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> to give it a more crass word, yeah, because uh, the church, the church is a community of people. It's it's. It's not something that can be housed and boxed and everything else. And it's always been people. It's never the, the building and the program and all that kind of stuff. We baptize it that way. And it's, again, our use of language that begins to dictate to us what we believe and uh, begin to change some of the core ways we look at things. We live in a world full of institutional systems. And, and the way that a lot of us grow up, we learn to create an identity from them. And religious ones have incredible power. Oh, yeah. um, to hook us. And at some point, the desire of God is for our freedom that gives us the freedom to be part of institutional religious systems or not. And that is a day-to-day part of an ongoing walk. You know, um, one of the good things about religious institutional systems, and there are quite a few, uh, religious systems have done a lot of great things on the planet. A lot of destruction, but a lot of great things. And whether it's health and education and and uh, working with the poor, there's just you can. There, as science has come out of fundamentally religious frameworks, um, and they, but they've done a lot of hurt, and uh, uh, they've created power systems where, you know, uh, where God is no longer necessary for them to function. It's money that's necessary. All these things, but they're 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 humanly created things. But we live in a world full of them. Mm-hmm. Part of the beauty of of what they do is that they have an ability to drive us to helplessness in a way that few other systems do, right? Because it will dismantle us to some of the core questions like the ones that you're asking Um, and the ones that you're struggling with with regard to Mars Hill. Regardless of all this, how this all falls out and everything else, people are going to have to deal with some fundamental questions about their, what do they hear themselves and how does that process happen? Where is their freedom? Are they going to take the risk of, relationship again what does this mean going forward all of these things are so beautiful because that's space that is now opened up in which people can hear for themselves what the spirit is saying to them great thing it's one of the it's one of those backhanded gifts that institutional systems give to us yeah and that's something i I struggle with too like I, i talked about um in my story i wrote kind of a public statement about leaving mars hill which i didn't want to write but I knew doing this podcast about half the people who listen don't even like <laughs> don't have their each issues. Right. So uh, I knew that it was something that would be important for me to write. And I did. And I ended it with uh, John 10, 10, where Jesus talks about shepherding, you know, like that he is the shepherd. The church is way bigger than, than Mars Hill or the Pope and the Catholics or the Baptists or, you know, insert denomination here um it's it's jesus who's shepherding the church and if if it gets busted up then then there's good news there and and while i i can agree with that and i know it that's one of those things like i know it i know it paul but i'm still in that sad place like i'm I'm still in a hurt place over it yeah and it's worth being pissed a lot of us are yeah you know things that are wrong the right response is anger so you know god's angry a lot yeah. He just doesn't use that anger to do more damage. Right. 
And um, so being angry about it and being sad about losses, yeah, it's like my relationship with my dad, you know. I've got huge losses there. Now, there's been huge healing there. Um, there are lots of things that are not restored that probably won't be on this side of this physical dimension. Um, so like in the shack, I put my hope for my relationship with my dad in chapter 15. But it's not because it's been it's it's made it there yet. And um, so it's it's a loss and I'm aware of the loss. It's just it's just not a wounding anymore. And that's part of the process is that it is a wounding right now, you know, Um, because people people do stupid things, dumb things for dumb reasons. But we don't know even why we do them. You know, what the issues of of insecurity and power and covering up our own shame and things like that then emerge themselves as expressions of an institutional structured system. Institutions have no life of their own. They have less life than rocks. <laughs> well, it's true. You take the people out of an institutional system, the thing doesn't even to dust. It just disappears. Yeah. And um, so it's human beings that actually matter in this. It's not the existence even of a system called Mars Hill that matters here. It's Mark Driscoll. It's you. It's every person. It's, they're the people. They're the ones that are eternal beings in all this. Right. And, and, and then we can go, okay, institutional systems are there. Initially, they were created usually to serve us. And what happens is they end up, we end up serving these things that don't even exist, the matrix, right? Right, right. And, um, and that's not the point. The point is, all right. And this is where forgiveness comes in. This is where when you act like a jerk, you learn how to ask for forgiveness. Yeah. Right? This is not because jerkiness is part of your being. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where people just opt out because they don't want to ask for forgiveness. So that they just say, well, I, you know, I'm just a jerk. That's just that's just who I am, which is not the truth. As, As a person thinks they are, so are they. That was a quick edit of part one and part two. My 